There are a number of grisly tales in the Old Testament, with a good number of them situated in what scholars refer to as the Deuteronomistic history, found in Deuteronomy, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. In Deuteronomy 7, the Israelites were instructed to smite, destroy, and consume the inhabitants of Canaan, an act that Joshua initiates at the city of Jericho. This prospect is understandably offensive to modern ears. The text is incredibly violent, bloody, and gruesome, and leaves us scratching our heads as to why anyone would ever carry out any of these actions. But could Joshua be getting a bad rap? Dr. George Pierce maintains that if we view the conquest narratives through the lenses that ancient Israel would have understood them, then we gain an appreciation for the actual point the authors were trying to make. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with George Pierce to talk about conquest and settlement narratives in the Old Testament. George Pierce grew up in a Baptist household in Florida. He received a BA in history from Clearwater Christian College, an MSc in Archaeological Information Systems from the University of York, an MA in Biblical Studies from Wheaton College, and a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Language and Cultures from UCLA, where he joined the church in June 2009. He's also served as research faculty at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Beersheba, Israel. He has excavated in Florida, Scotland, the West Bank, and Israel. His research focuses on regional settlement patterns, historical geography, and computer applications in archaeology. He and his wife, Dr. Crystal Pierce, have two children, Victoria and George III. He also contributed three chapters to A Bible Reader's History of the Ancient World, which we are going to discuss today. Welcome, George. Hi. Happy to have you. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about a little bit of a gruesome topic today. Sounds good to me. Conquest narratives, those chapters that make us squirm a little bit on our pew. There are a number of grisly tales in the Old Testament, and the conquest narratives are part of that motif of violence, unfortunately, as we think about it in the modern time. If we view the conquest narratives through the lenses that ancient Israel would have understood them, then we can get a different appreciation for these rather than just texts that are incredibly violent and bloody and gruesome and leaving us to scratching our heads as to why anyone would ever carry out any of these actions. Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan is recorded in Numbers 21 through 2 Samuel 5. Outside of the Bible, what do we know about Israel's conquest of the land? Outside of the Bible, 
we have very little textual evidence for uh, people coming into Canaan and performing the acts that we see recorded in Joshua or any of the warfare that we see happening in Judges or any of that portion from Numbers 21 through 2 Samuel 5. What we do see is archaeologically two things, surveys, both intensive as in how they're carried out on foot, walking across the landscape, and extensive throughout most of what is now considered the nation state of Israel and the territories of the West Bank and the Golan Heights, and partially Gaza as well. These intensive and extensive surveys have revealed a number of sites that seem to be established at the end of the Late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, so somewhere in the 14th century B.C. through the 12th century B.C. And in addition to this, then, archaeological excavations have shown cities such as Hatsor or Lachish or other cities mentioned in the conquest narratives that have identifiable destroyed layers as part of the archaeological record. And so archaeologists can look at both the settlement patterns and the excavated results and look at the time frame and can say, these settlements and these destroyed layers could fit within the range of the conquest. Now, to definitely associate it with Joshua, I think, is a different story. But archaeology tells us that there's a picture of some sort of social disruption happening throughout much of Canaan during the period that we would associate with the conquest. Okay, Joshua blows his trumpet, the walls of Jericho fall. What groups initially settled in Canaan as recorded in the Bible? As we look at the biblical narrative, we can see that even the Canaanites themselves are not necessarily a a monolithic culture. So there's not one sort of big Canaanite entity, if that makes sense. They don't call themselves Canaanites. They usually refer to themselves either by a city name, such as Sidon, or the descendants of a particular group, like a tribal group, so the Jebusites or Amorites or any other ites that we see happening in Genesis and uh, other books, uh, such as Numbers or in Joshua. Canaanite serves as a collective term for all these people that the Bible and then now biblical scholars have picked up on just saying Canaanite, but we have to understand that there's a whole bunch of different peoples. At the same time that we have Israel trying to make their settlement into the land of Canaan, we also then see that the sea peoples, most notably from the Bible we, we say Philistines, who are a group of sea peoples, the Philistines are also settling, and they're settling along the coast. And so we have Israel in the highlands of uh, Judah and uh, the highlands of, of Ephraim or Ephraim. And we have then the Philistines on the coastal plain. And we have the Canaanites then somewhere in the middle, either being dispossessed or abandoning territories or moving elsewhere or being subjugated. There's just a whole host of various things going on. If we were to say the big three, it'd be Canaanites, Israelites in the hill country, and then Philistines in the coastal plain. The conquest of the Canaanites and six other peoples was commanded in Deuteronomy 7. The Israelites were instructed to smite, destroy, and consume the inhabitants of Canaan. Rereading this chapter, I realized that pretty much every single verse would be offensive to modern ears. Take us through the highlights of this violent conquest narrative 
as we have in the Bible, we can see that the, the conquest narrative of Canaan itself starts off with the very unusual, unique conquest of Jericho, in which we have that story in, in Joshua chapter 7, Joshua and the Israelites are commanded to march around Jericho once each day for six days, and on the seventh day they're going to march around it seven times, and they're doing it all in silence, in plain view of the people living in Jericho, and then they blow the trumpets and raise a shout after the seventh time around the city on the seventh day, and the walls fall down, and then we have this ensuing bloodbath. Uh, as recorded there in Joshua. The story goes on to talk about how the fact that everything that was in Jericho was supposed to be slain, nothing taken, no sort of spoils of war or anything else like that. And we have the instance in which a, a member of the House of Israel does take things, and this doesn't fare well for other campaigns, such as the campaign at, at Ai, in which Israel loses uh, that battle and loses lives there, and that's a, a setback. But as we go forward, we, we see that I is eventually conquered, according to the text. We see that um, when we have this central part around Jerusalem or the central hill country there, after some campaigns there and some battles, we see that attention focuses northward, and Joshua and the Israelites head, head toward, toward a northern campaign and are going to face a coalition of forces that are led by those from Hatsor. We see that in the biblical narrative, Joshua utterly destroys Hatsor. It says in the Bible, Joshua 11, 11, that he burned Hatsor with fire. And that's an important point that we can come back to later on. But he burns Hatsor, and then we start to see then that there's a southern campaign. And once the southern campaign occurs, and they are able to take sites in the south, such as um, Lachish or even Hebron. It's then in Joshua 11, toward the end of it, we see that all the land had a rest from war. So there's an initial central campaign, and then there's a northern campaign, which, which will take out most of, of the sites of the north, specifically Hatsor, and then there's a southern campaign to retake places like Hebron, which is the, important for them because it's the burial place of the patriarchs. And once that happens, then the narrative says the land had rest from war. It doesn't mean that they are able to just do nothing. Now it's up to the Israelites to do things like planting crops and marking out fields and building houses and all the things that they should be doing instead of conducting warfare. And then Joshua 12 kind of gives us the culmination of that in which it lists all these kings and cities that are defeated by the Israelites, according to the record here, and carries on quite this extensive list because that's going to prefigure then the division of the territory into tribal territory starting in Joshua 13. It's a grim affair. It is. What's the modern reader to think about this over-the-top narrative? They conquered all the land. Really? So for the modern reader, we, we would look at it and take it at a, at a literal face value. And I think this was the, the reading that predominated within the biblical academy or scholarship on the Bible, at least up through the first part of the 20th century. A very literal, Joshua came in and he conquered this place and he conquered that place and this king and that king and all the rest without any sort of nuance and understanding of, of what's going on here in the ancient Near East and what even the, the narrative is doing. The mandate to wage this total warfare against Canaan comes in, in Deuteronomy 7 with these 
seven cultural groups, which include the Canaanites. And the word that's used is harem, which means something that's either devoted entirely or something that's destroyed. And, and we can think about how those two things are related. And it's been interpreted as something of this sort of holy war of utter destruction and that Jehovah is ordering them to go in and wipe out everything and to do this. As modern readers, we can kind of sit and think and say, how does this work? A God that we would look at and say is merciful and loving, and we have those passages in the Old Testament telling about how he gives mercy to Israel and loves Israel, how he can act this way against other within our theological terms, other children of God. How can he act this way against the Canaanites, or how does he act this way against the Egyptians? And one of the things that we can think about is that we have to understand what it means in terms of literature and what's going on here literarily, and what it means in terms of actual conduct of warfare, and then how this works with the archaeological picture. As we look at Harem and we, and we look at Bronze and Iron Age literature, we can see that, the, that they describe what's going on with Joshua in the same sort of terms that we see other campaigns conducted by Assyrian kings or by other kings of the Amorites or those of Syria or other texts that we have in the sense that language of conquest is similar. And we can look at those other campaigns and say clearly Assyria is not coming in and wholesale wiping everybody out. And clearly these kings of the Amorites or in Syria or whatever, as they're conducting warfare, they're not wiping everybody and everything out. It's just not going to be possible. But we can see that Joshua is using the same sort of language. Now, if we were to read the Assyrian campaigns, which I have, they are fairly grisly too. Unfortunately, one of the other things we have to think about is, is as modern readers, especially within right, the context of North America, in Utah or elsewhere, is that we're far removed from the concept of warfare. Now, right, we have veterans who have been in 20 and 21st century conflict who are very familiar with that and can probably identify, but for most readers, we're removed from it, so it's very shocking. For them, this is a part of life and this is just what was occurring. That's not to say it's all happening like this, though. That's not to say that they're going in a wholesale chopping up people and all the rest of this and then walking away, wiping the blood off their sword, and it's, you know, we're supposed to just accept it. There's certain other things as we, as we want to look at, at warfare in the ancient Near East and even modern warfare is that it's logistically impossible to annihilate an entire population. What do I mean by that? Let's just think about this logically. So Joshua and Jericho. Jericho, he's commanded, right? Everything is put to the sword, animals, the whole deal, right? Nothing's saved. But they're commanded to walk around the city once, each day for six days. So once they circumnavigate the city and they go back to the places where they're camping, would not somebody in Jericho who thinks that an invasion is coming just leave? One of the things we have to think about as modern readers is the fact that there's always going to be this refugee population, Anthropological studies in the Near East and, and looking at texts as well have shown us that these people, even though it seems right, they're living in cities and they're going out to their farms to farm every day and then coming back into the city, they have a built-in, what we call as anthropologists, a, a hardiness structure. They're very fluid and they can move between a sedentary house lifestyle to a more nomadic tent-based lifestyle to living in caves quite rapidly, as we see. Um, in fact, one of the verses that comes out is when Rehoboam it becomes king over 
Israel after the death of his father Solomon. And there's some dispute about mandatory labor and taxes, and Rehoboam says that he's going to do even more than what his father Solomon did. The cry is, to your tents, O Israel, because they realize that they have no part in what Rehoboam's doing. And so it's kind of this call to go and to become more nomadic once again, or at least to leave and break that bond with Judah. So we see that the people can move between houses and tents and caves fairly quickly. Going back to Joshua, if he's walking and having the people walk around the city once a day for six days, there's plenty of time that people are going to be leaving Jericho and taking their tents and going out and living elsewhere where Joshua and the Israelites aren't going to bother them. They're going to go to caves in the region. They're going to go across somewhere else and live until everything is said and done. So when we see the picture in Joshua of even the conquest and we see, oh, right, he's conquering, and they're killing everybody in Jericho, and they're killing animals, they're doing all this stuff. There's always going to be this population that's a refugee that's going to be out there somewhere. So total annihilation is not going to be possible. What we don't understand from the Joshua narratives is what type of warfare is involved here. So when Joshua and the Israelites conquer a town like Megiddo or Tanakh or Jerusalem, and it says that they did so, what does that actually mean? Did they defeat the forces of that town in the field and they never really touched the town? Did they come up against the town and most of the population's already moved off and they fight some people in the town so that by the time they're done, a place like Megiddo has no one left in it and they move out and then those people move right back in, which is archaeologically what we see happening at a place like Megiddo or Tanakh. Or textually, we see that there's five times that Jerusalem is mentioned that it's either conquered or not conquered. And it keeps going back and forth. And we see the final conquest of Jerusalem then under David in in 2 Samuel 5. In fact, it's like the last place it needs to be conquered. But we don't know what the character of that warfare is. So hopefully that makes some sort of sense. We don't know if it's taking the town or if it's defeating the army in the field or if it's just subjugating a king and they want to make some sort of alliance or treaty and it counts as conquest. We can definitely see in some places like Hatsor, going back to that in Joshua chapter 11, it says Hatsor was burned with fire. We can see that there's an archaeological destruction layer at Hatsor that is burned with fire. Now, we have then right, people coming back to Hatsor and reoccupying Hatsor in time, but certain places right, it mentions that, yes, this is a, a conquest, and this, this warfare actually happened, and we can match that up. In other places, we don't know what kind of warfare it was. And so I don't know if that's a comfort to the modern reader or not, but it's, it's one of the things that we should keep in mind. Also, Joshua wouldn't sit down after he'd conquered these places and write a narrative of what happened. When was this recorded? And might that explain a little bit that there was a literary purpose to what they were writing rather than just historically recounting facts? So that's correct. Joshua probably did not sit down and immediately start writing in his journal that today we conquered hot sore and we burned it with fire and then would move on to another chapter of Joshua. The best scholarly opinion is that Joshua judges Samuel and Kings and we can also include Deuteronomy, and with part of this, it forms what's known as the Deuteronomistic history. As a literary unit, we see them in our Old Testament and its individual books, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. 
But as a literary unit, it's all together in one big history. In fact, as you look at the books, it's all structured that way. It's all structured as one big history. The date of writing has been sort of thrown back and forth. And I think scholarly consensus would come down on that the Deuteronomistic history is probably written probably in the late 7th century, early 6th century BC, somewhere we could see that there's evidence of it being structured and parts of it being written during the reign of King Josiah of Judah and parts of it written after King Josiah's reign. And by that I mean this, when we look at the whole picture, we can see literarily how the conquest narratives can serve as Israel effectively sort of trying to recreate creation, if that makes sense. They're coming into a land which for them, because of all these Canaanites and Hivites and Perizzites and all the rest of these people, it's effectively chaos, much like creation. So in creation, Jehovah steps in, orders the chaos, puts everything into order with its right function, purifies the thing, and then on the seventh day has rest. In Joshua, we have the Israelites coming in, purifying the land by conquest or whatever else we want to see literarily. And when at the end of this whole thing, when they've taken the city of the patriarchs, then the land has rest. We can see that parallel concept there. The rest of this, then, the rest of the history is going to talk about, effectively, David, believe it or not. It's all leading us up to David. And it's building up this Davidic ideal for a king. The fact that we have problems with other tribes, but not with Judah. The fact that Judah and Benjamin have this row at the end of Judges, yet somehow are tied together, showing that Benjamin isn't supposed to have a king, but Judah should, ties us right into 1 Samuel, where we have Saul being proclaimed the first king of Israel. And to a reader, 400, 500 years down the line, they're going to go, yeah, no, Benjamin shouldn't have a king. And clearly... Right? doesn't work out. You know what? That leads us into one of the grisly things we find in the Bible. So during the Civil War, there's this famous story. Tell us that and how it might tie into Saul being the appropriate king. In Judges 19, we're given the story that there is a Levite who has a concubine, and she is from Bethlehem. And she leaves wherever the Levite is serving, somewhere in Mount Ephraim. And she goes back home to Bethlehem, and he has to go retrieve her from her father. And in the process of that and getting her to go with him back to where they would be living in Ephraim, we have then the tale that they're traveling, they're going to have to spend the night somewhere, and the Levite's servant suggests that they should stop in Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time was still the home of the Jebusites and had not been conquered by David, clearly. And the Levite says, no, we're going to move on to Gibeah, which is a city of Benjamin. So the Levite consciously makes this decision. We're not going to go to a Jebusite town. We're going to go to a town where Israelites live, specifically Benjaminites, because the assumption is that they're going to be treated well and that they have this kinship because they're all part of the house of Israel. The story then is that while he's staying in this town in Benjamin, the men of Gibeah knock on the door and they're sort of demanding that the Levite be given to them for whatever sort of sexual assault is implied in the text. And instead, he puts out the concubine 
and they assault her. And in the morning, she's dragging herself up the steps. He takes her to their home in Ephraim, and then ends up killing her and sending parts of her all over Israel and all the rest of this. To each of the to 12 each of the tribes. twelve tribes, yes. So twelve parts sent to each of the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes get together, and the Levite then addresses them to say, "Look how I've been wronged. Look how I'm the one that's offended here." No discussion, and biblical scholars have picked up on this. No discussion of look at what's happened to this woman and her rights and anything else that's going on. But look how the Levite has been offended personally by the behavior of these people from Benjamin. And the 11 tribes who are gathered together then all decide, like, well, we need to go to war against Benjamin. And we have then the ensuing civil war between Benjamin and the rest of Israel, mostly Judah carrying out the attacks, to the point where I think the text mentions that Benjamin's nearly all wiped out, except for a handful of them which are taking refuge at some place that's either a cave or a hill somewhere that they, that they can find refuge. And then eventually we get the situation where they need to make peace between themselves and Israel because Israel feels bad about almost wiping out an entire tribe. And then we have then this tie between Judah and Benjamin established. Now, the story as we look at it is awful, right? So there's rape and there's murder and there's civil war and there's all kinds of things going on. But what it's doing literarily is it's showing us a couple of things. First of all, here at the end of Judges, the phrase that keeps getting used over and over and over is there was no king in Israel and everyone did that which was right in their eyes. And so it's showing us that Israel needs a king. Israel is going crazy and they're entering into these civil wars with each other and they're having these problems and they need a central leadership. What's also showing then is look at the actions of the Benjaminites, the people who should have offered refuge, the people who should have offered this person help, the people who should have taken in a Levite from Ephraim and a concubine from Bethlehem and brought them into a house, fed them, clothed them, fed the donkeys or whatever. They're the ones who acted most inhospitable, and that's putting it mildly. They're the ones who acted the most inhospitable. And so what the tale shows is Israel needs a king. Benjamin is not a source of kingship. And there's a hint there that the concubines from Bethlehem, Judah, so it's kind of setting you up for what's going to happen. In the Deuteronomistic history, if we turn to 1 Samuel, what do we see? Israel saying, like, look, we need a king. And then... Saul being anointed the first king of Israel, and Saul comes from Benjamin. So again, the reader is going to look and say, that's not right. But it's setting us up for David. All these things are leading up to say, look how great David is. What the Deuteronomistic history does then is it sets up David as this pillar of kingship and this model of a godly biblical king. Now we're going to look at it and go, what about other things that David does? That's beside the point. David's leadership and his kingship and his devotion to God is held up as an example. And every king, as you start reading and you start looking in your personal studies or, or for gospel doctrine classes or whatever, and you start looking at the kings that are mentioned in First and Second Kings, they're always compared to David. They either did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked after the ways of David their father, or they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not walk after the ways of David their father. So Deuteronomistic history sets us up for this big emphasis on David and then there's a big emphasis then on King Josiah, the fact that King Josiah should be the second David, because they're always looking for the second David, right? Who's going to be the king that's going to be just like David and, and do all these things? And Josiah seems to be leading up to that point. 
And then we can see in the Deuteronomic history that there's a later additions and corrections because once Josiah dies, it's realized like he's not going to be the second David. But that's what we're left with. So we're left with a text that literarily is putting together the conquest narratives of Joshua and the Israelites coming into Canaan, trying to establish some sort of order to what's going on in the land. A land then which just falls into disorder because they don't have a king. A king who rises up, such as David, who's going to bring all these tribes together, who's going to establish this monarchy. Solomon's going to come in as well, I think capitalizing on David's charisma and having that building effort of fortifying cities and building the temple and and all the rest of these things that Solomon does. And then how the whole thing sort of dissolves and how they're looking for a second David the whole time. So that's how we have to sort of look at the whole picture, which is a a fairly large nutshell of the generalistic history. There is one more thing I'd like to discuss that you covered in your chapter. You said, look at this conquest narrative. Are they of lands or kings? Why is that important? For a modern readership, I think we look at the conquest and we read it through this lens, especially 20th century warfare. And we have this almost World War II-like idea of them coming into Canaan, like landing on the beaches in Normandy, and then sort of marching across the hill country, like the American and Allied forces coming across France. And they're taking territory, and they're taking back cities, and they're fighting for these things. We have the same thing on the Eastern Front with the Russians fighting the Germans. And they're eventually sort of making their way to Berlin. But they're conquering territory. And what we really see in the conquest narrative is when it mentions in Joshua 12, here's all a list of these kings and their cities, it's more of a, a conquest of people and not so much territory because there's a lot of missing space in between or there's there's instances in which cities like Megiddo and Tanakh and Jerusalem and others are mentioned as conquered, but they're not conquered later on. The narratives of Joshua have to be juxtaposed against Judges 1, which as we look at Joshua, we say, oh, look at the picture of conquest and what Joshua is able to accomplish and all the rest of these things. But Judges 1 says, no, the conquest wasn't finished. And there's all these other places that need to be conquered, some of which are mentioned in Joshua. And so we can see that really what Joshua 12 in the list of kings is doing is saying, these are peoples that are subjected, but their lands may or may not be completely within the control of the Israelites. So there's still going to be the struggle of Canaanites living in the land. They're still going to have enclaves of people who are not Israel maybe being within a tribal territory of Israelites. We can read the conquest narratives in that way and sort of understand this isn't them sort of marching across the land and taking every single square inch. This is the process of taking some territory, subjecting other peoples, maybe fighting an army in the field. Clearly the coastal plain with the Philistines is going to cause a problem, as we see later on in the narratives in First and Second Samuel. That's one way we can sort of think about that. Because, again, when we look at the conquest narratives, we're tempted to read it based on our experiences or our family's experiences historically. We look at this in a, in a very 20th century sort of way. And to be quite fair, it's not like 20th century warfare. It's not like the events of the 20th century, like the Holocaust or something like that. It's something different. We need to appreciate 
that if we can appreciate a violent text such as Joshua. Is the book of Joshua getting a bad rap? Is it really that much worse than the rest of the Old Testament? I would claim that it's not worse than many of the other books of Scripture or events that we have listed in Scripture. And so when you think about Joshua, we look at him and we go, wow, there's a lot of conquest here, and they're burning cities, and they're putting people and things to the sword. We see other events. What about the flood in the days of Noah, which wiped off everybody except for the people who were in the ark? What about the events of the Book of Mormon, in which we have Nephites and Lamanites fighting each other? And there's some pretty grim things in there within Mormon and within Moroni chapter 9 that would sort of cause you to to really reel at what's going on in warfare between those two groups. We look toward events of the Second Coming and the Apocalypse and prefiguring the Millennium. There's a lot of destruction and there's a lot of things there. So as we sort of take a look at it, there's a lot of violence going on. And that doesn't excuse anything, but I think it helps us to put it in context that from the Flood through the Second Coming, it's part of the human experience. We've gone over the conquest narrative in the Bible. Obviously, the Israelites settled in the Levant somehow. What other scholarly theories account for the settlement of this area? In the early 20th century, the academic view of Joshua and the conquest narratives within the Old Testament was that these events were literal and that archaeological evidence should prove them to be literal. So the predominant theory was one of conquest, one that Joshua came in, he conquered all the cities that are mentioned in the Bible, he conquered the kings and the territories that were there, and that the archaeological record would show all these destructions everywhere. Now this model has had to be adapted because as archaeologists looked at sites like Jericho, which the original excavator, John Garstang, thought that the walls that he found collapsed out around the city were late Bronze Age walls, and this was evidence of Joshua. Later excavators, like Kathleen Kenyon, redated that wall and that set of walls to the early Bronze Age based on the pottery, so predating Joshua by at least 1,500 years. And so archaeologists and biblical historians had to rethink the conquest model and have proposed something a little bit more modified more recently, and that is called the Modified Conquest Model, in that the cities that show archaeological destruction, such as Hatsor and others, that are mentioned in the Bible as being burned with fire, these we can cautiously link to a conquest done by the Israelites. In other places, the conquest is either done by covenant or done by conquering the armies in the field, as we mentioned, or the people had left the town, leaving only some sort of force to defend it, and the town was conquered, and by the time Joshua walked away, they didn't think anyone was left, but everyone's going to move back in, leaving us that story. That's how Joshua and Judges kind of get reconciled in a modified conquest model. But this isn't the only model. Other scholars in the 20th century started to come up with other pictures, because as they looked at the archaeological evidence, and they looked at the texts, they said, well, Conquest may not be what's actually happening here. And so we have a couple other theories. First of all, gradual infiltration. The fact that Israel is in Transjordan, across the Jordan River, for a while, and they kind of move in, and this, this accounts for a lot of the survey evidence, the archaeological surveys which find the sites that suddenly sort of crop up at the end of the Late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, which scholars would 
identify with some sort of new settlement group coming in. It's not done by destruction. Nobody's destroying the site because it wasn't there before. It's just all of a sudden newly founded. And this spoke to scholars and said, well, maybe there's something going on here in which they're gradually infiltrating. Right? So they're coming in peacefully. And that the conquest narrative is completely fabricated later on to show that Joshua was as much of a conqueror as David or any of the other Assyrian or Syrian kings going around. It's not as plausible because it doesn't take into account some of the, the archaeological evidence or the sort of rapid rise that we see in settlement patterns in in the Iron Age. And so if it were more gradual, we, we'd expect a more gradual rise in these things. But they all kind of come in at the same time. There's also a theory known as the, as the Peasant Revolt Theory in which two scholars, particularly Norman Gottwald, but also George Mendenhall, they proposed independently the fact that Israel had come out from Canaan, right? they were, so they were originally Canaanites, and that they were the peasants of the Canaanites, and that they were coalescing around this idea of the worship of Jehovah, and that they revolted against their Canaanite overlords. This theory does account for the rise in settlement during the end of the Late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, but there's no evidence for population decline elsewhere or other types of villages that, that show up, and so it hasn't gotten as much traction as others. More recently, the theory has been proposed that Israel and the settlement and the narratives can be explained just by what's called nobodization. Canaanites suddenly went from living in towns to living in tents and then eventually settling in smaller villages, but this also doesn't account for all the archaeological evidence. And then the final theory which has been proposed is that of ruralization, the fact that there's plenty of land available and that those who didn't have land and would not inherit land through their family structures would eventually become this Israelite population with the various villages that are settled. But it doesn't account for what's going on with the worship of Jehovah or the evidence of such within the Iron One. So as we look at the different theories of, of Israelite settlement, there's not one that completely fits all the material that's in front of us. To be able to take the text and the archaeology together, we have to have a combination of conquest, of gradual infiltration and peaceful settlement, a theory that involves a people who are nomadic and eventually settling down, a theory that involves Canaanites who may be moving to a rural situation or who may be dissatisfied with their social status, joining in with Israel, which is what we see in the biblical text happening as well. And so there's not one main theory that fits. We kind of have to take all of it and mash it together and come up with something that would be acceptable and, and would make sense in our minds. Some members of the LDS Church try desperately to find devotional elements in the Old Testament when perhaps they are not always there. The Bible is a library. Part of it is this conquest narrative. What conclusions have you come to regarding the purpose of the conquest narrative in the Bible? So as we look at the account of Joshua and the Israelites and, and what they're doing with the defeat of Canaanite cities as it's presented, we can see that the text itself is trying to couch these events in terms of Deuteronomy 7 and its mandate to go in and to settle 
this land and to effectively remove its inhabitants. But we can see what's going on in, as we look at Judges, the, the fact that it was difficult to get rid of the Canaanite population. The main thrust of Deuteronomy 7 is to not have Israel interact with the people around them. They have this divine instruction, don't interact with the Canaanites, don't intermarry them, don't worship their deities. And instead what we see is Israel doing everything opposite. They're not able to dislodge the Canaanites. They are, do start to intermarry with the Canaanites. They do start to worship other deities. We can see that it's difficult to understand the Canaanite narratives in terms of archaeology and marrying that with the text and looking at the material culture and everything else that's there. And we're left then with looking at the text to say, what do I get out of it? And while it's probably popular to turn to, to Joshua 24 and to say, well, the whole thing just revolves around, uh, it's for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I think we shortchanged the book of Joshua by saying, there's something here that within the text, they're trying to obey the commandment of the Lord, but they're not successful in always doing so. And when we think about the importance of that and, and how that works, we can see how it's going to play out in the rest of the life of the house of Israel, whether it's in the book of Judges or later on under the monarchy or when the monarchy splits into the two kingdoms, everything stems back to their obedience. And so I think to try and get one thing out or just to try and shorten it all down to Joshua 24 and saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, I think misses the rest of the complexity and the richness that's there in this tale of Israel's emergence and their settlement in, in the Holy Land and understanding what that means in terms of obedience and what that means in terms of longevity in the land. Thank you, George. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.